government regulations, which were created to protect employees, are actually hurting them. It's regulation after regulation. Until the government understands that they have to create an environment suitable for us to keep growing, we're going to stay in this recession a long time. The federal government has blocked efforts to expand the ride-sharing The owners say the restaurant has succumbed to the crush of government regulation. We have seen an unprecedented explosion of new regulatory $1.8 trillion. That's how much business and bus companies to close. I think there are outdated regulations that need to be changed. There is red tape that needs to be cut. The regulations are There's a regulation that doesn't make any sense. Why do you keep Is this really the best we can do? This is Free Lunch, the podcast of the Federalist Society's Regulatory Transparency Project. All expressions of opinion on this podcast are those of the speakers. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another Federalist Society free lunch podcast call for the Regulatory Transparency Project. Visit the RTP website at regproject.org, regproject.org, to subscribe to our newsletter and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Devin Westhill, the director of the RTP and the host of the Free Lunch Podcast. This Free Lunch Podcast explores the question, is the newest part of the Copyright Act, the notice and takedown system, antiquated? It seems counterintuitive that the newest part of the Copyright Act could be obsolete, but there are reasons to suggest that it is. For example, last year, copyright owners sent Google nearly 1 billion takedown requests. The issue, of course, is how can any business or creator keep up with a system that has been called an endless game of whack-a-mole with online infringers? And no one, including online services, seems to favor the status quo, but there is substantial disagreement about how to resolve the problem. Lucky for us, we are joined on today's free lunch podcast by three individuals with deep knowledge of this topic. Our guests are Mark F. Schultz, Jennifer L. Pariser, and Maria Schneider. Mark is a professor of law at Southern Illinois University School of Law, where he teaches and writes primarily in the area of intellectual property. Mark frequently writes and speaks about his work on the intersection of copyright and social norms. I'm pleased to say that Mark is a member of the RTP's Intellectual Property Working Group and co-authored the recently released paper, Creativity and Innovation Unchained, Why Copyright Law Must Be Updated for the Digital Age by Simplifying It. That paper takes a deep dive into the topic that we're discussing today and can be found at regproject.org. Jenny is the Vice President for Copyright and Legal Affairs at the Motion Picture Association, where she provides counsel on intellectual property and other legal issues and runs the MPA's Anti-Piracy Notice Program. Jenny lectures extensively on copyright topics, including at the Copyright Society of the USA, the American and New York Bar Associations, and at various law schools around the country. Maria is a highly accomplished composer and musician with the Maria Schneider Orchestra. Her orchestra has performed at festivals and concert halls worldwide. Schneider and her orchestra have a distinguished recording career with 12 Grammy nominations and five Grammy awards. Schneider has become a strong voice for music advocacy and in 2014 testified before the U.S. Congressional Subcommittee on Intellectual Property about digital rights. She's appeared on CNN and has been quoted in numerous publications for her views on online services such as Pandora, on digital rights, and music piracy. Most recently, she and concerned colleagues in New York have launched a widespread campaign on behalf of music makers called musicanswers.org. If you'd like to learn more about any of our guests today, please visit regproject.org. Shortly, I'll turn the floor over to Mark. Before I do, as usual, I remind everyone that the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy initiatives, and therefore all expressions of opinion on free lunch podcasts are those of our featured speakers. Also, our guests have graciously agreed to take questions after their remarks, so please be prepared with any questions that you might have prior to the start of the question and answer period. Mark, Jenny, and Maria, it's a wonderful pleasure to welcome you today to the 15th episode of the Free Lunch Podcast. Mark, you, sir, have the floor. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And I'd like to uh, uh, set, the, set the stage for our discussion today. I suppose as the, as the academic on the call, that, that's a, a worthy job for me uh, because you'll be hearing from two people who are, whose livelihoods are affected by uh, copyright infringement and who have to deal with the system, the legal system we have every day. So uh, what I'll do is I'll describe the, the system. I'll describe the time it was built for, the late 90s. I'll be reminding you 
some of you what the internet was like in the late 90s. Perhaps it's a, it's for, for many of our audience, we've reached a, a point in history where uh, it's, it's more of a, it's history to you, uh, not, not something you remember. So I want to set the stage for, for what laws we made back in the late 90s. And I'm going to, going to describe what some of the problems are with, with the system we have. Now, uh, everybody knows that uh, online infringement is rampant. And another thing that, that many people think that everybody knows is that it's inevitable, uh, that it's unstoppable, uh, that the system just is the way it is because that's how technology evolved and human beings are, are frail and, and like to get things for free. And so that's just what we're stuck with. But, but I want you to understand that the system we have today the, the circumstances we have today were not inevitable. Yes, I think there would always be some piracy. Yes, there would be content copied. But the, what we have today was not inevitable because it was a product of choices that we as a society and specifically Congress made in the late 1990s. Uh, they, they chose to write the law a certain way picked winners and losers at the, that time and tipped the scales in favor of certain businesses. So let me, let me tell you what happened. So in 1998, the Congress passed the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. The idea behind the act generally was to update copyright for uh, the new digital age. And the one of the big concerns at the time was online infringement. Now, online infringement didn't look like it did today, uh, that it does today. I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but uh, there, there, there needed to be, there, people knew it was coming. And, and it had already started enough that uh, movie studios and record labels and, and other creators were concerned about the potential of online infringement. Uh, on the other hand, there was concern among those who were creating uh, new web business models, particularly internet service providers like the big telephone companies at the time, and sort of the, the infant industry, the newly emerging websites and web services. Imagine an age when, when Amazon wasn't where you did most of your Christmas shopping, but it was a, a very new website that sold mostly books. Uh, that's the era we were in. And so the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, often called the DMCA, tried to strike a balance between the interests of creators and the interests of these new web services, as well as the other traditional telephone companies that were providing access to the internet. So here's what the DMCA does with respect to copyright infringement. It sets up a system where that addresses the fear that files that were posted on the internet could spread in a matter of days or weeks before a lawsuit could stop them. Yes, that's what I said. People were worried at the time that when infringing content went up on the internet, it would take too long for the legal process to address it because it could spread quickly, quickly being, as I said, days or weeks because at dial-up modem speeds, which is what most consumers had at the time, almost all consumers, that's how long it took things to spread. So uh, the, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act was drafted with this situation in mind, and the goal was to contain infringement. So what it created was a notice and takedown system to give everyone some breathing room and time to work out their issues over a specific infringing file before they went to court. So under the notice and takedown system, what happens is a creative business uh, when it finds an infringing file on the internet, it notifies the service provider. Now, until the service provider has notice, um, they are not liable for the infringing file being on their website. Um, they, they're not liable until they have notice. Once they have notice, then they become liable if they fail to take it down. So what the, the system does is it creates a safe harbor. It protects these online businesses from uh, liability 
for copyright infringements uh, until they have specific notice of a specific file. Uh, and and this was a, a, arguably a departure from you know prior history. What we would have done in the real world, in the physical world, is that if you were running, say, a farmer's market where there were tables up where people were selling counterfeit CDs, uh, you might have easily been liable for that, the far farmer's market operator, if they didn't stop people from doing that. But the concern was that as the internet was growing, we were creating these services that worked at a large scale. Think of YouTube, for example, or all of the search results you would find on Google. Um, there's, a, there's a vast amount of stuff on those websites, and there's more every mi posted every minute. And it would be unrealistic, to it, the thought was, to think of the operator of such a website as being able to patrol the website in the same way that the owner of a farmer's market could patrol the farmer's market and, and stop infringers or kick them out. So the idea was, hey, these folks need notice. Uh, or we might impede innovation, we might impede the growth of the internet. Uh, but the problem was that the scale of infringement that was envisioned, as I said, was, was, the, was based on the idea that people would be posting stuff, it could spread over a, a matter of time, and so we needed to contain the infringement long enough for somebody to be able to go to court and get it taken down, or for a cooperative service provider to take it down once they had notice. Now, that was uh, that was a, a notion that that more or less worked in 1998. It quickly became a very quaint notion. Uh, with Napster de debuting the next year in 1999, massive online infringement became the reality, and it was no longer about containing a specific file. It was about trying to, I guess, manage a chronic condition. We were no longer trying to contain a, a, a problem, a disease, uh, a sickness, we, and keep it from spreading. We now had a chronic condition we had to manage. But we're still living under the old system that, as I keep saying, I keep emphasizing, is based on identifying a particular file. Now, files don't really matter the same way they used to. Consider that under the DMCA, uh, some creative creative businesses have to send repeated notices to the same website. So, for example, this file containment approach leads to an endless, almost futile game of whack-a-mole, where creators send the same take-down notice for the same works over and over and over. For example, in a three-month period, Disney sent about 35,000 takedown notices for illegal copies of Avengers Age of Ultron at a single site, um, uploaded an average of more than 375 um, times a day on a single site, and there's many infringing sites. Uh, and so, and this is, re these statistics could be repeated throughout the, the movie industry, the record industry, recording industry, and over, over the course of many websites. So when you have a, a, re a relatively obscure website, that is is having a single movie posted 375 times a day, the website ought to know something is wrong, that Avengers Age of Ultron doesn't belong on its website. But it doesn't have to do anything until the creative business provides a specific notice of the specific file, and only that file needs to be taken down, even if 10 more versions of it have gone up in the time it took to send the notice, and the, and, the, and the business is not obligated to take down those files until it gets specific notices. So we're living under a relatively antiquated system, and it creates huge burdens. As Devin said, Google received about uh, nearly a billion takedown notices in 2016. Now that's a lot to process, and you can feel sorry for Google, but don't forget, Every time a notice is received, it has to also be sent. And that the copyright owner bears the burden of patrolling the, the internet and sending the notices um, and finding you know, the, the, the causes of infringement. Now, this is tough for big businesses, and it's kind of ridiculous and futile for big businesses, as Jenny will tell you, I'm sure, how frustrating it is. 
But just imagine being an individual creator like Maria. Maria will tell you about this. It's it, even if you're even if you don't have the kind of volume of infringement that Age of Ultron had, you're still uh, you know even if it's just thousands of so-called fans who aren't really fans posting your work online, you could spend your entire time chasing them rather than creating. So what we've got is a system that doesn't work well. It's a system based on late 90s premises, and it's really hard on creators. And the problem here, I'll end by saying, is that, is that Congress did what it often does. It has a bad habit of writing copyright laws that are based on what the business models and technology of that current moment. And we still have provisions on the books that originated from problems like uh, turn of the 20th century piano roll manufacturers. Uh, we have provisions dealing with audio tape um, manufacturing and distribution. Congress tends to pick winners at a particular time and losers at a particular time based on a particular technology and a particular business model that becomes obsolete right away. What we need are simple rules for a complex world. We need um, copyright laws that are based on fundamental principles that are flexible and adaptable rather than these very specific provisions that are based on premises of a current day. And with that, I'll turn it over to my colleagues. Thank you. Awesome, Mark. Uh, Jenny, do you want to pick up from here? Sure, happy to. Um, so first, let me uh, thank the Federal Society for putting the podcast and uh, um, web call together, uh, and also to Mark, who did an excellent uh, paper on this topic, and I really recommend that to, uh, to everyone. Uh, a lot of the uh, statistics that uh, we're looking at uh, on this call are laid out, uh, if everybody wants to, uh, to go check them out later. Um, they're laid out in a submission that we did uh, in response to uh, the Copyright Office's uh, inquiry into uh, the notice and takedown system. And uh, they're submitted on the Copyright Office's site uh, on, uh, in a early April 2016. And our comments are there along with uh, many other content owners. And uh, what we learn from those comments as well as our experience on this issue is that, as Mark described, the DMCA was designed to be a system where uh, balance uh, would be achieved between copyright owners on the one hand and online service providers on the other. We were all going to cooperate together in dealing with the inevitable problem of copyright infringed works on the internet. The unfortunate reality is that almost all of the burden has been laid on the shoulders of the content owners and very little on the site operators. Uh, it is up to the content owners to uh, police the internet for instances of infringement, uh, make, uh, come up with DMCA compliant notices that you can't just send any old piece of paper or email to a site. The document has to be uh, compliant with the NCA regulations and often <clears throat> with handwritten, uh, you know, individualized notices that each individual site operator layers on to the DMCA. So they want their notices in a certain format or, you know, they want it faxed or they don't want it faxed or whatever it is, they can come up with those individualized rules. And then it becomes the site, it becomes the content owner's obligations to uh, find those instances of infringement and send a notice to the site. At which point the operator merely has to take that individual file down. Mark talked about these millions of notices that ha had been sent. There are millions because each individual URL of a particular file has to be individually noticed. 
and then the site will take that individual URL representation of a file down, which is how you get a situation where, as, as Mark described, um, Disney had to send 35,000 notices on Age of Ultron to one site in a one-month period because so many individual instances of that file keeps cropping up. Now, um, from our perspective, the DMCA was designed to make it so that once a single notice was sent to that site, they would then be on notice. They would have knowledge and awareness that this is a copyrighted file. Uh, there can be no mistake about that. If you, if you had any confusion um, uh, about it, if you somehow thought that you know, Disney's Age of Ultron was not a copyrighted work, um, that it was in the public do domain or it was fair use or some crazy thing like that, well, here is actual notice that um, it is copyrighted and you need to take it down. Why do we need to tell you this another 35,000 times? Um, from our perspective, the DMCA was designed so that once a notice had been sent, the burden would then shift to the site operator to make sure that additional instances of that file cropping up on its site wouldn't occur. Unfortunately, the way the DMCA has been interpreted by courts is the courts have said, no, I'm sorry, Disney, you have to keep sending those notices over and over and over again because the site is not responsible for taking down um, new instances of infringement. That's your job. And so you get these crazy instances where thousands, millions, and collectively billions of notices are sent on infringing files. Even more problematic is how quickly these new instances of infringement proliferate. You can send a notice and a new version of the same work appears in its place before you've even taken the first one down. They just, you know, new files just bubble up to the top. So it's this constant game everyone calls whack-a-mole um, where you're the content owner is just constantly fighting this ongoing battle of a, you know, of, of a deluge of infringing files. Now, if you, if you work at a big corporation like Disney, the other motion picture studios, the big record companies, some of the larger um, photography outfits, book publishers, you have a staff that sends these notices. Now, it still costs the company millions of dollars to have that staff a lot of time, and we're still obviously not really dealing with the problem of piracy online. Perhaps we're making a dent in it, but it's millions and millions of dollars, lots of time expended on that. Um, one of the things we saw um, online sites say in the context of this copyright office inquiry is, well, this is kind of the way it's supposed to work. Um, content owners have their burden. We have our burden. Uh, we're all just getting more efficient at sending notices and receiving notices. And, uh, you know, yeah, there's, there's, lots in, there's lots of infringement out there, but this is exactly what Congress intended. We take issue with that. Uh, if it were the case that these billions of files, infringing files, were what Congress intended, if this system was what Congress intended, then piracy would be diminishing at the very least. But it isn't. All that has happened is that uh, everybody has gotten better at sending notices. So for example, in uh, March 2013 to February 2014, members of the Motion Picture Association sent 22 million notices to sites devoted to search. In the same period in 2015, that number had grown to almost 60 million. So the problem is just getting larger. We're not dealing with the piracy issue. Uh, and the DMCA has been completely ineffective at creating the balance that we believe Congress intended. And that's, that will conclude my opening remarks. Wonderful opening remarks, Jenny. Thanks a lot.
Um, now, I guess, Maria, would you uh, like to give us your perspective? Absolutely. So um, being an artist uh, gives, uh, I'm going to try to give you a window into what I experience with this um, little hell that the other two have described. So um, for me, of course, the best case scenario is that you, you, you find a, the DMCA link on a site and you inform them and they remove it. But then, of course, then you've got the whack-a-mole game. But as often as that, a lot of times I'll go to that DMCA link and it just takes you to a big black hole and you never get a response. And my guess is that these are probably foreign sites that are posting DMCA notices just to make themselves look legitimate. And then, of course, there's the torrent sites that say, hey, it's not on our servers. This is out of our hands. So then, okay, the next logical um, resort is that you do a Google takedown, which obviously doesn't really help you on Bing, Yahoo, or DuckDuckGo. But forgetting that, it gets much more ludicrous because, uh, as Jennifer was saying, I, I think it's probably bots that morph that URL right after a takedown into a slightly different one. But even if that doesn't happen, now I, and Jennifer might be able to speak to this with Disney, um, what I experience is that all my Google takedown URLs are stored at the lumendatabase.org site. And anyone can simply go to lumendatabase.org and type in Maria Schneider, and it searches and you do, it does a search and shows my takedown URLs. And you can, they aren't hyperlinks, but you can just cut and paste them back in the browser and get the download. So, you know, to me, Lumen is kind of like a one-stop pirate shop, and um, it's hardly a remedy. You know, so a Google takedown is hardly a remedy. Now, um, for YouTube takedowns, that's a whole other matter. Um, for YouTube, and actually for Google takedowns too, you first have to get a Gmail account. So if you're not on YouTube already with a Gmail account, you have to secure that, and you have to accept their terms, which include, of course, um, limited liability and place of jurisdiction. That's certainly not in the DMCA. Secondly, there's the DMCA penalty of perjury form that you have to sign, swearing that you're, you're truly the person that has the right to take it down. And that would be understandable and even great if the uploader had to sign the same form. And then thirdly, um, on YouTube, you encounter threats of lawsuits and attorney's fees if you're found wrong. And even YouTube has even um, advertised that they'll give up to a million dollars to help users who have had wrongful takedowns of their work. And, you know, I haven't seen them offering uh, creators <laughs> the same. So it's amazing how um, uploading is 100% frictionless. There are no questions, no warnings, no threats, no penalty of perjury statement. So... So say I go ahead with all this, you know, and I do my, my YouTube takedown. And um, next, what happens to me is that I find my, page, my name displayed on a big page with an apology for my takedown. And it's got a big frown face on it, and it's placed there in perpetuity. And, you know, so YouTube, and they, they brag of, you know, there's the strike three, you're out rule for repeat user offenders. But... If you lose your YouTube account, if a user loses their YouTube account, all they have to do is just create a new Gmail username and open up a new one and start all over again. So that hardly does anything either. So I can choose between Whack-A-Mole, ending up on Lumen's one-stop pirate shop. I can cave under YouTube's intimidation and just do nothing. Or I can do the takedown and essentially be displayed in the stocks on the market square. And... Or number five, and this is my biggest YouTube dilemma. And believe me, each musician, I'm sure, has their own unique conundrum. And that is that by doing a YouTube takedown, I risk damaging my re reputation through that takedown. So to give you background, as you heard, um, you know, I compose my own music. I have an 18-piece jazz orchestra. I produce my own recordings, and the budgets for my recordings are around $200,000 per record. And that's not paying myself for the months of time and years and everything, preparing the music, 
recording the music. And what a lot of people don't understand is there are a lot of musicians in my tier, and these might be Pulitzer Prize winners, you know, MacArthur winners, and, you know, great musicians that we have smaller audiences that were important to the culture of music in this country or the world. And we, many of us, are taking on the financial risk of investing in our own recordings. Most musicians I know, even musicians on known record labels, are financially backing their own records, which it's another subject, but would likely explain why many record companies are saying, you know, that their profits are surging, even though streaming has dismal payouts. Of course, everything's gravy if you're not paying for all the records. So going on, um, a lot of professional groups, university groups, even high school groups perform my music. Some do it well, some do it adequately. Many times they are not playing it adequately. But a lot of these groups are posting those performances on YouTube. And they're using my name instead of theirs as the carrot to attract viewers to their, to their video. And YouTube, of course, is offering no guidance to these performing groups. They're not saying, if you're performing a composer's work that is still under copyright, you must secure permission. And as further background, I self-publish my scores, and I largely make my living guest conducting and teaching these kinds of groups. That's largely how I pay for my records. Um, and furthermore, these groups and their audiences buy my albums. So I, obviously, I don't want to punish them with that classic takedown that gives them their first strike um, because I potentially am going to work with these people. They buy my music. But if I'm forced to reach out and kindly explain, you know, go through the trouble of finding them and spending the time trying to, you know, jump through hoops to kindly explain that they're violating my copyright. You know, I risk shaming them, embarrassing, angering them. You know, I think, and the sad part is, I think that none of these people realize that this is even illegal and the damage, they're not thinking through the damage that they're doing to me. So if I have them remove it, are they going to stop buying and performing my music again? If that happens, okay, now it impacts the sales of my written scores. It will impact impact my performance concert royalties from ASCAP, which I belong to. It will impact my clinician work and will impact even my CD sales. So generally, what I've had to decide with these things is, is that the risk is too big. Um, and now I proactively, when I sell scores to my site, I write on the front that, um, you know, that if you're, you can't put that up on YouTube, without my permission, but there are thousands of copies of my music already in circulation and in music libraries. And, you know, even as it is, I worry that that warning on my scores is a turnoff and makes me feel, you know, kind of litigious or something. So, you know, the point is, and somebody else said, maybe Mark, I shouldn't have to police this. All these YouTube performances that now I'm leaving up they're hurting me. They dilute me. They dilute my, my sales. And there's no quality control. And bad rep representations of my music are obviously hurting my reputation. So as you can see, I'm kind of damned if I do. I'm damned if I don't. And like most musicians, many of us aren't even bothering anymore. It's just a futile, you know, effort. So the one last thing I just want to mention is fingerprinting technology. And I think that is our true great hope. But the problem for people like me that, um, is that YouTube doesn't allow people like me to get content ID, which is the fingerprinting blocking technology. Well, they use it for monetization too. But they don't allow people like me to get it exclusively for blocking. And they, they say, when I've brought this up, they say, oh, well, you can get it through a third party. Yes, if you're monetizing, and then you're paying yet another gatekeeper. But if you want it exclusively for blocking, of course, there's no profit in that for anybody. So it's not available. So, you know, even with, um, I think in your white papers, you had something about fingerprinting technology being imperfect and 
only blocking 80% of the time. As imperfect as that is, for me, that 80% would be a complete godsend. And later, I'd love to talk about how that technology might be made a standard technical measure. I, I think it already does qualify to be a standard standard technical measure for any, you know, user, they call it UGC, user-generated content site. And that concludes my my rant. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding, Maria. Great remarks. And uh, thanks to all the panelists for your initial remarks. Um, what I think we should do now is just uh, go to audience questions. Uh, everyone in the audience, in a moment, you're going to hear a prompt indicating that the floor mode has been turned on. Uh, after that, uh, to request the floor, you can enter star and then pound on your telephone keypad. Okay, the floor mode is on. Uh, when we get to your request, you'll hear a prompt, and then you can ask your question. Uh, we'll answer all questions in the order in which they're received. Uh, again, to ask a question, please enter star and then the pound button on your telephone keypad. Um, we do have a question in the queue, and I, I've got a lot of questions myself, uh, but I'll hold off on that for a moment. There's been quite a bit of discussion here already in the initial remarks. Uh, Mark or Jenny, uh, Maria, you were last, but uh, if, if any of you have anything, any response to someone else's uh, remarks, um, we'd love to hear those now. Um, maybe Mark? Sure. Uh, well, one thing I, I want to note about the, the last issue Maria was talking about, I, I think it's it's pretty important. Uh, it, it, re, it reflects on it. It touches on a couple of things. So, so YouTube has this technology where they can identify your your work when it's posted uh, through uh, through digital fingerprinting, as Maria described it, or what they call their content ID system. Now they're willing to do that and work with you, but there's a catch. Um, they they will post ads on the content and uh, give you a cut of it. And they pay extremely low, low rates. And why can they get away with that? Because you have two options. One is that you go with work with YouTube slash Google and get paid their low rates uh, for and leave your content up, or you have to use the notice and takedown system. And of course, we've talked about the futility of that. And so. Google's in this this great position where uh, they can either profit off of your work or force you to do the work to make them take it down. And they can afford to pay you very low rates. And by the way, those low rates they pay uh, tend to depress rates across the, uh, the, the system. So, you know, and the last thing, the other thing I'll say about Content ID is it, it, it's been around for years now. And but it didn't seem so easy or possible 20 some years ago. And a lot of what we did with the DMCA was based on the idea that we had these infant industries that we we wanted to see grow. We were all excited about, you know, the possibilities of the Internet. Well, those possibilities have been realized. And some of the infants that weren't even born yet when the DMCA was drafted. Uh, well, those are the richest, most powerful companies in the world sitting on top of vast sums of cash. They're no longer infants. They no longer need to be protected, even if they ever should have. And they now have the technology to deal with this issue. It's no longer impossible or painful or, or will stifle innovation. They do it to make money. They manage content. They know where to find it, how to find it, and, what, and, whether, and to how to take it down. They just don't have to under the law. All right, Devin, back to you. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate that. And I should say, Maria, I know you're back uh, and you're unmuted. So uh, once we get to uh, the first question directed towards you, or if you have anything to say, uh, you'll be able to. We'll be able to hear you. Um, Jenny, was there anything you wanted to say before we get to the questions? Um, no, I think uh, we we covered it pretty well, uh, and we can uh, we can turn to questions. Wonderful. Let me go to the first question in our queue now. Caller, when you hear the prompt, you can ask your question. Hi, this is uh, Christian Stapp from DMRS. Um, Jennifer mentioned that uh, the case law could have allowed notice and state on if I understood her comments correctly. Um, so 
is the way to fix this situation uh, through better judicial interpretation or does it require legislation? So, so if it's a judicial approach, what cases went wrong and is it a matter of getting the right uh, the right litigants in front of new judges or if it's legislation, how do you get the uh, content companies and the platforms to agree to terms and how do you get that, that deal for them? Yeah, so uh, this is Jenny Pariser. I'll, I'll take a crack at that. Um, I think a lot of things went sideways on the uh, judicial front. Um, first, the courts, um, in terms of getting the right litigants in front of the courts, I think I'd say that uh, that, that has been something of a problem. Not every case that uh, presents these issues um, has, has been a really great uh, set of facts for the DMCA. Uh, unfortunately, uh, some of the copyright owners who have really vigorously pursued their rights in federal court have been uh, ones that not everybody uh, uh, fully appreciates. Um, Perfect Ten, which is a uh, an owner of um, pornographic content, is a huge uh, DMCA litigant in this space, and unfortunately, they lose most of their cases. Um, so that has been something of a problem. Um, but even when you have um, two, I will call them white-hatted uh, litigants, uh, Viacom versus YouTube, um, courts have just been extraordinarily reluctant uh, to look at the online service provider, in that case YouTube, um, and say that they had the requisite knowledge and ability to take down infringements. Um, you know, I just think it's kind of this fundamental idea resident in a lot of courts um, that these online service providers should not have to uh, basically live with the bargain that w the DMCA struck. It's sort of like buyer's remorse. They, they went into this deal. They got, this, they got a, uh, an obligation to help police the Internet, and they're not living up to it. And um, courts are, are sympathetic to them. Um, it's not entirely clear why. A lot of us think that um, having newly minted millennial uh, judicial law clerks is part of our problem. Um, it's not really clear why. Um, what the solution is, um, it, it's unfortunate we, you know, that the law has developed the way it is because precedent requires you know, courts that now are presented with these issues to kind of follow the law that has come before them. So um, it, it's a it's an uphill battle at this point. There's still areas we are uh, we are trying to make headway with. Um, um, one of the goals we had for the Copyright Office when we put our comments in is that they would perhaps do a white paper on. Uh, the notice and takedown regime that would aid courts in, in properly interpreting the law going forward. Um, the Copyright Office is yet to issue its report in response to all of the comments they received. Um, they tell me that's coming out sometime next year. So, um, you know, maybe they will have um, some uh, ideas and helpful suggestions for appropriate judicial interpretation. Well, that was a really thorough answer, Jenny. Thank you. Um, but I wonder, Mark, is there anything you wanted to add? Oh, sure. Uh, I I just want to – I think one of the solutions we suggested in the white paper was exactly what Jenny talked about, uh, either either getting – either persuading the courts that they've got it wrong or or persuading Congress to clarify and and, and amend the law to make it clear that, at the very least, if you have, if a service provider has has some sort of general knowledge, what what is technically called in this area red flag knowledge, that there's there's some level of knowledge where they they have an obligation to act, that they don't have to, you know, they they aren't entitled to wait until they get specific notice. What do I mean by this? Well, for example, YouTube was in a lawsuit with Viacom for a long time, 
And a lot of what uh, was being, what Viacom objected to was content from Comedy Central being posted on YouTube. Uh, South Park at the time, The Daily Show, and, and some other shows. And it was interesting because during the course of that litigation, uh, I would put the YouTube site up on the projector in my classroom and we'd play a little game, my students and I. And I'd say, um, at the time YouTube was set up, it had this, this front page where it scrolled through what was being posted in, in a live feed. And I would have the students kind of shout out, you know, whenever they saw an infringing Viacom clip go by. Now, maybe it was fair use, but what we saw, we could sit there and in the course of a couple of minutes, they would be shouting, there's one, there's one, there's one, over and over again. And so you had this situation where YouTube was being sued by Viacom for Comedy Central content being posted. Um, anyone who worked on the, the site, any executive who happened to, to look at their own website would have seen this infringing content flowing past their very eyes, um, the content over which they were being sued. And yet in the end, uh, they, were, they were held, the, the, that case held and other cases have held, that you know, until they receive a specific notice from the content owner, they had no obligation. And that part of the law, I think, was misinterpreted. Uh, and that is something that needs to be fixed in the law, uh, where, where if, you, you know, if you truly don't have knowledge, if you have no idea, then of course you shouldn't, well, arguably, maybe you shouldn't be liable. Maybe you should have some duty to monitor. But um, if you are generally aware that there's infringing content on your website, which we're going to assume you actually look at, um, then you ought to have some level of liability and should not be able to avail yourself so easily and completely of the safe harbor. Can I say something, Maria, yes, Maria. here? Um, isn't it the case, though, that the Viacom YouTube case in the very end settled? And in settling, isn't it, isn't it the case that, you know, maybe Viacom essentially did win, but unfortunately it doesn't set a precedent because they agreed to settle. Or am I wrong about that? They ultimately settled in the, in the very end, but that was not until there were uh, at least two district court and two Second Circuit Court of Appeals decisions Right. on the interpretation of the DMCA. So, um, you know, I, I really don't know the nature of Viacom settlement, but in terms of uh, putting Viacom aside, it's pretty clear that content owners generally lost uh, in terms of the DMCA judicial interpretations that came out of that dispute. That's true, yeah. Okay. Uh, we've got one caller who's been patiently waiting here, uh, but I'll remind everyone else who's on the call that if you're interested in asking a question, just enter star and pound on your telephone keypad. One other thing, too, is um, I'll remind everyone that the white paper that Mark was referring to is, uh, is called Creativity and Innovation Unchained, Why Copyright Law Must Be Updated for the Digital Age by Simplifying It. It's a paper that uh, Mark co-authored with his colleagues on RTP's Intellectual Property Working Group and is available at regproject.org. Okay, we're going to go to our next question here. Caller, when you hear the prompt, you can ask your question. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, my name is Randall Ovison. I'm a software engineer here in um, Provo, Utah, um, and just wanted to uh, you know, ask a question of the floor. Um, uh, so I've, I've I've heard a lot of the opinions of um, of content creators, and um, from my from my perspective, there's a there's a side to the story that maybe um, has not been voiced yet um, with regards to fingerprinting technology, for example. Um, one of the things that that courts historically have done a reasonably good job of doing. Um, when it comes to cases of copyright infringement versus fair use has been uh, looking at the um, content in question and deciding whether this is really an attempt to, you know, take revenue away or take notoriety away 
from the original content creator, or if this is intended to create new content, new derivative content from um, from the original. And this is that, that that's something that computers can be extremely bad at. When you use um, when you use fingerprinting technology, you can end up uh, in YouTube's case, for example. And um, and just just a just a side note. Um, while while yes one of the thing, one of the as as it was mentioned earlier the only things the DMCA has done has made content creators really really good at issuing DMCA notices i would argue that it's also made uh, content distributors online service providers like youtube really really good at listening to notices uh youtube um uh, while while it will never truly be good enough from the perspectives of content creators in the same way that from youtube's perspective it will always be too much um they they certainly have um, taken large steps that they that you know um, they've introduced technologies that didn't exist at their inception to prevent me from for example right now trying to upload Age of Ultron to YouTube that it wouldn't allow me to do that um, so to some extent uh, fingerprinting has applied and I'm sure there are restrictions in place obviously YouTube is going to fight tooth and nail for every inch um, but anyway as I was saying. Um, Content create other other content creators, derivative content creators on YouTube, who really have been given their voice not by old-fashioned publishers um, who would manage their copyright for them, but by the ability to unrestrictedly and freely upload their content to YouTube, um, have been harmed in the past by fingerprinting technology, by its tendency to um, you know to be entirely unable to uh, determine fair use when looking at a video. Uh, courts have ruled in the past that, for example, uh, reaction videos, as long as the focus is on the reactor and not on the content they're reacting to, are actually fair use. That's fair, um, uh, fair derivative use. Whereas, you know, and, and in some cases they've ruled the other way, a reaction video where you're basically just looking at a screen and the person is sitting on the couch occasionally laughing at the content is not considered fair use. Um, so, my uh, my question would be if you were to legislate or or in as we've talked about in the courts reinterpret the law such that um, some sort of database of fingerprints would become a uh, sort of legal obligation on all online service providers and I would also wonder does that extend to internet service providers or does that does that stay restricted to um, to service providers like YouTube. If you were to put that legal obligation on their shoulders, um, does that unfairly uh, disadvantage, you know, smaller online service providers who aren't maybe as big as established as YouTube? Uh, people have brought up in the past that YouTube has become so large that they don't really need to be protected. Um, and then we've gone to the other side from the contrary directive when we talked about the little guy. But we haven't really inverted it and looked at the big guy on the side of content creation and copyright holders, so Viacom, Disney, et cetera, and looked at the little guy on the on the side of online service provision. So instead of YouTube, you know, up and coming video distribution services that are attempting to maybe uh, cut into YouTube's monopoly a little bit. So does that put an unfair burden on their shoulders, and does it unfairly um, does it unfairly advantage out of out of state, so I'm talking about international services who would obviously not be um, as thoroughly uh, restricted as any okay. of the American companies would be. Okay, that's, so, that's, yeah. I, we really appreciate that perspective, and I, I think we should give our panelists an opportunity to respond. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, we, we, we've got about seven minutes left on our hour-long call here also, and I want to give them an opportunity to give any final remarks that they want to give, but uh, I'm not even sure I can sum that up into a short question. Um, Mark, Jenny, Maria, do any of you want to sort of take the first stab at responding to that uh, that perspective? I can say something, Maria here. Okay. Uh, first of all, what I would say is when you're looking at the purely at the numbers, I think that the scale definitely weighs on that copyright infringement, you know, true honest copyright infringement that aren't fair use cases or whatever definitely break the scale. And in the case of YouTube, full tracks or albums are never fair use. And if there was a, a database like with, say you put your music into a, a magic, like a magic audible like database and, 
and it's something I'd love to talk a little bit more about, you could have contact information in there. So if somebody is, if their work is stopped by you and blocked by you, you could reach out and say, hey, I think you didn't understand that, you know, I, I did this, this certain thing. I used a little bit of your music and it's a fair use or whatever. I mean, there, there should be ways where provisions can be made to give fairness and possibility for those scenarios when they arise. Great. Uh, Mark or Jenny, so, any thoughts on, on that uh, question? So, yeah, Jenny, any thoughts? or? Go ahead, Mark. I mean, I do have a couple, um, but go ahead if you want to jump in. Uh, I, I Well, I think there, there's a, a couple points to, to be made. One is, is that I suppose writing digital fingerprinting technology into the law would be making the same mistake that I'm accusing the late 1990s lawmakers of. Uh, what we need are flexible standards that are not based on current technology that don't pick winners and losers. And I know that, that a lot of uh, people you know, are concerned about derivative creators, uh, people who use fair use to make works that they put online. Um, and great, those, those, those are creators too. Uh, and some, some of what they do is valuable, entertaining. I've enjoyed it. But let's not forget that there are other creators who, who invest a lot in, in creating their, their works that aren't the derivative creators. And we, we shouldn't pick an, a, a solution that advantages one over the other um, arbitrarily. I think you know the, the original creators have a right to, uh, to benefit from their works. They're the ones who made the investment in them. And we need to to, uh, to set legal standards and principles that are flexible enough that uh, that impose reasonable obligations on service providers. Uh, right now, their obligations are not reasonable. They, they they can get away with looking the other way quite easily, and they make money while the creators suffer. So I don't think we have a reasonable circumstance at the moment. Jenny. Yeah, the, the only point I was going to make um, in response to the, the last bit of the question about the fairness, um, and the, I think the general idea of the question is uh, fingerprinting technology is more easily absorbed as a business expense by um, big online services and unfairly uh, burdens small site operators, um, and in addition, it uh, it disadvantages overall U.S. companies versus international companies that won't won't get this imposed on them in any way. Um, and while that all may be true, uh, a small site operator presumably also has less uh, less piracy on their site. Uh, and presumably would only need to go to a fingerprinting technology if the volume of infringing materials on their site were so out of control that they couldn't do it manually. At which point, um, you know, I, I think, yeah, even though you're small, if you've got so much piracy on your site that you can't stay ahead of it, you need to put a fingerprinting or some other filter uh, on your site to prevent that from coming through. Um, uh, you know, the fact that a system is imperfect doesn't mean that we shouldn't at least try to look to solutions that are going to help a, a vast problem of this nature. Well, thanks to all three of you for responding to what I thought was a really terrific perspective and, and um, quite a few questions uh, sprinkled in there as well. Um, I've really enjoyed this discussion. We're coming uh, close to the top of the hour, uh, and I wanted to give each of you, if you have any, uh, an opportunity to give final remarks to uh, our listeners. Uh, Maria, since she, uh, you were the last to speak, uh, maybe you might be the first to, to offer any final remarks if you have them. Well, I'd like to just for an instant um, just talk about the standard technical measures because, you know, right now YouTube is hiding behind this DMCA language that there needs to be a multi-industry standards process. And, of course, they know in order to deem something a standard technical measure. And they know full well that the industry, in the music industry or the content industry, can't come to the table, let alone in agreement. But if you look at the legislative history, 
of the DMCA. Actually, it makes a very clear case that digital fingerprinting technology like content ID um, is a standard technical measure. So Patrick Leahy wrote the definitive report from the Judiciary Committee on the DMCA, and he wrote that a standard technical measure does not have to be the result of an actual formal, uh, quote, standards process. He said it can simply result from an ad hoc evolution of a technology within an industry. And he specifically gave an example from 1998 um, that was held out by the Judiciary Committee at the time as a great example of such a standard technical measure. And that technology was called CSS, and it was developed with no standards process. It was developed by Matsush uh, Matsushita, and it was to combat piracy. And the characteristics were, one, like Audible Magic, it was pioneered by one company, Matsushita, to combat piracy. Two, like Audible Magic, it was licensed and adapted over a period of years to many corporations, Toshiba, Sony, Panasonic, IBM, Time Warner, Disney. Um, um, and like that, Audible Magic has now been licensed and adopted in some form by YouTube, Facebook, SoundCloud, Vimeo, Viacom, Dailymotion, all these things. So, and three, like Audible Magic, CSS slowly became an industry standard technology for combating piracy, and it's an exact parallel technology. And there's a great Columbia Journal Law um, Review article from 2010 by a woman named Lauren G. Gallo, G-A-L-L-O, and it makes a very strong case that content ID or the fingerprinting technology should be considered a standard technical measure. Um, and it's pretty ironic that in that she thanked Fred Von Lohman in the acknowledgments for what she called his helpful feedback and suggestions. That was before he now works for YouTube. And she also thanked Jane Ginsburg. So, you know, she had very strong support of this argument, and I really think it's something that should be looked at. Thanks for those final remarks, Maria. Um, Mark, do you have a minute or so of final remarks? And uh, I think I, we'll go uh, and give Jenny the last word. Well, well, certainly. Uh, I, I guess mostly I command people, uh, commend people, commend people to our our, our our white paper. We discuss the issues in detail and and some potential solutions. Um, I think I think you know I, I'm not sure what the prospects for reform are politically. I know it would be tough, um, but but we we really are dealing with an outdated law that really unfairly burdens creators and has had consequences. The choices we made in the late 90s have helped create the the legal choices we made in the late 90s have helped create this environment of rampant infringement. And it's really unfair to creators, and it's had a, a really big impact on the, the culture we enjoy and the, the ability of creators, particularly middle-class creators, independent musicians, filmmakers, and others, to be able to make a living. And we ought to do something about it. So that's my remark. Well, thanks, Mark. And uh, I parrot your remark that... Uh... Uh, folks who are interested in a deeper dive into this uh, should uh, go to regproject.org and uh, take a look at the Creativity and Innovation Unchained, Why Copyright Law Must Be Updated for the Digital Age by Simplifying It, a uh, paper uh, that uh, Mark uh, and his colleagues at, uh, on the Intellectual Property Working Group for the Regulatory Transparency Project uh, co-authored. Uh, great, great paper that goes into great depth. Uh, Jenny, do you want to get the last word here? Sure. Um, I'll be brief. Um, usually in the role of Chicken Little on these issues saying the sky is falling, and it certainly is, but I will try to end on a more positive note and say that I do think uh, these uh, conversations are helpful. Uh, all the creative solutions people are coming up with are helpful. I completely agree that uh, we should look to uh, standard technical measure setting regimes, fingerprinting, as well as other uh, filtering technologies are out there, uh, and I think we can start to look to them. Uh, judicial uh, uh, changes 
help from the Copyright Office, as well as voluntary measures, industry interagency cooperation between the content owners and the online providers. We've had a good deal of success dealing with payment processors, uh, uh, domain name uh, registrars and registries, as well as a variety of other uh, players in the Internet ecosystem have been helpful uh, in making inroads on these problems, and that work needs to uh, continue. Well, thanks for a positive note, Jenny. Um, I will only say that on behalf of the Federalist Society's Regulatory Transparency Project, I want to thank both our audience uh, and our panelists uh, for joining us for the free lunch podcast today. I hope that we'll connect again with you all in the new year. But until then, so long for now. On behalf of the Federalist Society's Regulatory Transparency Project, thanks for tuning in to Free Lunch. As always, you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play to get new episodes of Free Lunch when they're published. Also, visit our website at regproject.org. That's R-E-G project.org. There, we regularly upload content in addition to our podcasts, such as short videos and papers. And you can join the discussion by sharing your story of how regulation has personally affected you. Until next time, remember, there's no such thing as a free lunch. This has been a FedSoc audio production. 